once we did get into Europe, we had to decide between the Mediterranean strategy that the British wanted or Northwest Europe, which leads us to Normandy, right? Leads us to landing in France. And so there are only strategic decisions that had to be made, you know, Pacific or Atlantic. And once we were in in the Atlantic or Europe, we had to decide between the Mediterranean southern route and the northwest route. Uh, And then, of course, in the Pacific, we had to decide between southwest Pacific, MacArthur, or the central Pacific under Admiral Nimitz. And the thing is about American strategy, we did all the above. I always tell my students the secret to American strategic planning in World War II was when we were faced with having to make decisions, our answer was always yes. We did all the above. And, and Normandy, going into France, was something the Americans had wanted to do early on. So the fact we land there on the 6th of June, 44, is the result of us having actually had a plan to land as early as 42. We had a plan called Sledgehammer, which we could have put uh, maybe a division ashore in France in 42, and that we would only have done that if it looked like the Soviet Union was about to collapse, because that would have been to take pressure off of them. And then we had another plan, um, you know, that was a, a roundup, which was to uh, land in 43, and we decided that we really weren't ready for that. We were fighting, of course, at that point in Italy, the, you know, it landed North Africa in late 42. And so Normandy, overlord, is the end result of all of that. And I think to understand D-Day, uh, I think it has to be put in that perspective. Otherwise, it's just kind of people get the idea that we just suddenly one day decide to invade France. That's not how it happened. It says there were task forced or groups of people or, or small or large or whatever, probably working on the idea uh, from that from that point. Yeah. Uh, uh, as early as forty one. As early as forty one. Okay. Yeah. And, and you've just made my assertion that you all, I've always learned something from you come true very early in the program. So your your task is <laughs> semi fulfilled because I, I never have I've never heard of this and and uh, I may have read it. Uh, I've enjoyed reading the books that, his first name is Rick, I can't think of his last Atkinson. name. Atkinson. Yeah. Yeah, those, those, those books. But I, I'd much rather listen to you. To, to, uh, to I enjoy reading One of the things that I've always thought is that uh, because of the historical association of, of the United States with Great Britain, and maybe because Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt were fairly good friends, mm-hmm. there was no way that America was going to let the British go down. They were going to figure out how to do it one way or the other, and they might change the words and call, you know, call it something else. But uh, they were going to provide aid. Uh, he was going to, way. and he had a, he had more trouble than a lot of people realize. I mean, you're absolutely correct. Roosevelt had two strategic assumptions. One was that the Axis powers really did pose a threat to the United States. Germany, um, Japan, and to a lesser extent, Italy. But Germany and, and Japan were threats to our national security. And that was his first assumption. His second assumption is the American public doesn't share that. The American public did not see that. The, uh, you know, we were much more isolationist than most people appreciate. We did not want to have a repeat of World War I. Uh, that's something else Americans have forgotten. That we came out of World War I, uh, what a bad taste in our mouth. We we didn't achieve the result of the war to end all wars or the war to make the world safe for democracy. Um, it wasn't clear what we'd accomplished. We don't sign the Versailles Treaty. We don't join the League of Nations. There was a general sense that, that a lot of people believe we'd made a mistake in 1970. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, and let, let me say, we just celebrated Memorial Day, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of Americans had lost their boys, their yeah. husbands and their yeah. fathers and so on. It was hard to find that too. And then uh, you, you'll have to tell me if this is out in left field, but the, the general, I'm trying to think of the guy who, who had the committee uh, that discovered the... Uh, the all the armaments, yeah, Creole, yeah, that... The so, guy, he's from South Dakota, I think. Uh, uh, the, the, well, the people, the, 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 the industries in America... Arms, the armaments had, uh, industry, the financiers, J.P. Morgan and the rest. Yeah, had, all that, that benefited yeah. a great deal. But uh, there, was, there was those unknown soldiers and those people who would be celebrated on Memorial Days. And, uh, and uh, Charles Lindbergh and uh, some of his uh, friends were uh, great... Promoters of the German Bund, you know, mm-hmm. for so supporting. Uh, I know H.L. Mencken was a supporter of the Germans. Yeah. And, the America and, First uh, Committees and so forth. And yeah. So we should look after our own security. And, of course, R- Roosevelt believed that our security was uh, tied to the British and to the French. And that we, you know, and, and anything we could do to support them, of course, when France falls in 40, when the Germans are so successful in 1940, not only does that change the strategic balance in, in Europe, but people always say that, that really is what leads us to Pearl Harbor because the, at that point, the French and the Dutch can't support their colonies in Asia, and the British can't really defend their own colonies in Asia because of, of what's happened in Europe. So suddenly we're on, in an entirely different strategic situation in the Pacific. What happens in Europe affects the balance in the Pacific. So all these things had, had, had led Roosevelt to become more and more involved. And, of course, in 41, we had Lynn Lease, right, give the British everything we, we could um, to help them fight, keep fighting. Um, people joke that, that meant Roosevelt was willing to fight the, the Germans down to the last Englishman. Okay, as long as we kept giving them weapons uh, and everything else that they needed, that the British would, would, would be fighting the Germans. Then we extended that to the Soviet Union after June of 41, and there are even more Russians. So, I mean, the idea that we could, to some extent, you know, hold the Germans in check simply by providing supplies to the nations that are fighting the Germans, uh, I, I think Roosevelt could have. He, he would have, have, have fought the Germans without ever actually committing American troops. But, but it turned out that was not possible. Right, and then I was just thinking we needed to take a break, and I was going to ask you to to come back after we take the break, and you may have already done it, but to to talk a little bit about the the. I know we were supposed to be commemorating D Day, but all of this is tied up together, mm-hmm. and one of the the greatest proponents of what happened on D Day was Joseph Stalin, because uh, uh, he wanted that if, second front. If the Russians had dropped out of the war, we would have really had a problem yeah. then. So let's talk about that, if if that's all right with you when we come back. Dr. Joe Cadell, our resident military historian for the last 30 years, we're always glad to have him come. And tonight, the the program, even though it's not on June 6th, which is the anniversary of D-Day, that's Sunday, and we're not on the air on Sunday. So we're going to warm you up for it and hope, as you observed, uh, uh, by doing something or thinking about or reading something or watching a documentary or whatever it is you do, uh, relative to Memorial Day last Monday, you will do that this coming Sunday and think about all that was going on across the ocean on June 6, 1944. We'll be back with Joe Cadell right after this. 
CTF. Went a little long in the first quarter hour, so we're going to have a short session here of about seven or eight minutes. We're talking about uh, D-Day, uh, the background to it and why it happened and, and when it happened and so on with our military historian, Dr. Joe Cadell. I didn't give his pedigree at the beginning, but Dr. Cadell is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has his Ph.D. from, from Duke, and he has uh, taught at, uh, uh, actually, I think in some way, he's taught at both of those places, And but he teaches, I think, Joe, I haven't updated myself, so if I go wrong here, you have to you have to correct me, but you've been teaching at both the University at Chapel Hill and the University at Raleigh yes. in, in recent years. Yes, and, uh, teach at Carolina and State. Once in a while, we run across one of your students here. Ernie Dollar is on with us occasionally, and I think he, I don't know if he was actually a, a literal student of yours, but yes. he knows you. And he, yes, he was. Uh, he claims he learned a, something from you. Graduate so, courses at, at State. I think I learned it, more from Ernie than he learned from me, probably, though. He's a fine scholar. I really admire uh, He's scholar. really into it. That's yes. the great thing about He is a very impressive scholar. But uh, I don't know whether uh, it's necessarily talk much about the role of the Russians, but of course they were pushing for a second front from yeah. from the beginning. Of, yeah. Well, from June 20th or 21st, 1941, when the when Hitler pulled the pulled the, pulled the trick on 22nd uh, of June, the same day that Napoleon invaded in 1812. It's odd. I tell my students if you're going to invade Russia, don't do it on the 22nd of June. It's been tried twice, and so far not, people are over two. Not a good day. Well, no. you know, I just want to recommend one thing, and then we can go wherever you want to go from here. I, I still uh, I like your exploration of, of some of the background and the reasons for um, the 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 ultimate invasion, and and perhaps why it really did in the end take place. Uh, this is, I'm sure, it's pr pretty obvious uh, in in Western Europe. But why at Normandy as opposed to someplace like the Pas de Calais, which is where is the shortest distance across the channel, mm -hmm. and and what did the Germans think? You know, how much were they fooled by the, the choice and they so were, on? They but, were uh, fooled a great deal. The deception plans were, um, you know, that's something I, I, I research interest of mine is deception, and the deception plans they had almost a dozen deception plans. You, you couldn't you couldn't hide the fact that there was going to be an invasion. The Germans knew about the buildup. You couldn't hide the, the massive buildup of men and materiel. There was no doubt that there was an invasion coming. So if you can't hide the fact there's going to be an invasion, the Allies knew they really had to throw the Germans off in terms of where and when. And they were very successful. They had uh, the most important deception plan was Fortitude South, which was to make it look like the Potty Calais, right across the Straits of Dover from Dover. Um, that shortest distance, that's only about 20 miles across the channel there, that that would be where it was coming. Well, the, the beaches aren't as, as uh, uh, good there for landing. It's also closer to the German uh, uh, supply lines. But landing a little further west in Normandy would give uh, Allied air power the ability to interdict uh, German reinforcements, German supply, so the landings. But when, once you land, it's a race between trying to get troops and material ashore across that beach faster than the enemy can bring forces up to push you back into the sea. And so the further you were away from the main center of gravity, the German center of gravity, Germany, you know, the more you, know, you can, can interfere with their, their movement of forces. Um, 
the, the criteria they had, they need to be within 100 miles of allied air bases so we'd have air cover. You, you wanted beaches with a certain amount of gradient to make it uh, and sand. They, they, they knew what they needed to have a successful massive landing. And there's a 50-mile front there in Normandy, 50 miles from east to west there that uh, had beaches suitable for, for putting landing craft ashore. Um, and they, they also land in the interior for putting three airborne divisions in there to, to help cut off the reinforcements coming up. So they, they chose Normandy. And really, Normandy was chosen in 43. About 43, they decided that Normandy would be the place they would, would land. But they knew the Germans were looking at the Pas de Calais, so that, that deception plan, Fortitude South, played on that. Any good deception plan takes advantage of, of what you think your enemy is already predisposed to believe. And so they, they really worked on it. And even after we landed, um, uh, the Germans thought that perhaps Normandy was deception, that perhaps this was only a diversionary landing. And Eisenhower, if you read what, what he said about the landings, um, he, he talked about, the, uh, he, he, he used terminology to make it vague as to whether or not this was the invasion or part of a series of invasions. If you read his speech, and that was intentional. And up to the end of, of July, the Germans were still tracking what they thought was a U.S. Army group, first U.S. Army group, FUSOG, um, which was fictional, that, that, a notional. It, it did not exist. But we had created a dummy equipment. We had people uh, uh, transmitting uh, false radio signals. Uh, General Patton was being advertised as the commander of it. And so as late as July of 1944, uh, you know, a, a month after we've landed in Normandy, German intelligence still thinks there's an, a, another Allied force in southeastern England that might might land there uh, in the Pas de Calais. So it's one of the most successful deception campaigns ever. It's, 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 it was beautifully done. Okay, uh, let's stop right here and come back as uh, they approach the beaches on the morning of and, and kind of work yourself out of that when we come back after we check the news. Dr. Jeff Fidel is our guest. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Dr. Joe Cadell, who when he's just a little tyke, was down in Aberdeen, North Carolina, listening to WPTF. I hope that's true, and if it isn't, maybe he won't deny it. But he is our guest tonight. He teaches uh, history at uh, NC State and at uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And one of his uh, specialties is military history. And uh, we're glad that he's been willing over the last, 30 years to come visit with us. The first time we ever had him on was Pearl Harbor Day in, in 1991. And uh, one of his colleagues had said, if you ever want to get somebody on Pearl Harbor, this is the guy to get. And uh, I don't know whether we'll be still doing business on Pearl Harbor, but we always think of you, uh, Dr. Cadell, when that, when that time comes. You know, that, uh, that, that old adage, you know, time flies, that sort of thing. I just can't, it, it's impossible to believe that it was 30 years ago. Well, when you get older, it goes yeah, faster. Yeah, you know, it, it just, it, it, I don't know where the last 10 or 15, 20 years have yeah, gone, but we've yeah. enjoyed having you with us. Uh, um, the, uh, we were, were talking about the D-Day, which the anniversary, the 77th anniversary, would be this coming Sunday. And uh, it's interesting uh, that uh, probably the best uh, picture of D-Day, if, if I understand from people who observed it, uh, and the invasion, as it is dramatized, is at the beginning of the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
you know, I always try to get out of you what some good movies are to watch with regard to the military situation. And I was I have watched about half of The Longest Day, and I'm going to finish it tomorrow and Friday. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I take a break every once in a while and watch 30 minutes or an hour of it while I'm doing my other stuff. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I got a kick out of when the German general said Normandy. And I said, well, that's one word I recognize for sure. Uh, but uh, the 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 uh, the Germans, the Nazis, did not. Uh, they were they were taken in. They were by the misdirection of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, the Allies invading. Did they? I, did they? I know there was some magicians type work going on, but did they, did they have active diversions uh, to to try to make the Germans think that they were going to land in further north in Europe? Yeah, well, you had uh, the Fortitude South. Uh, there were two. Fortitude North was a deception plan to make the uh, uh, Germans think that, that we're going to land in Norway and come into Europe from the and come in and occupy Europe from the north, uh, cut off Swedish iron ore and everything, and, and then come across into Denmark. And so that was Fortitude North, and there was a, a, a notional uh, uh, Allied army group up in North, in Scotland that the Germans believed existed that didn't really exist. Uh, and then Fortitude South was this uh, first U.S. Army group, which didn't exist, that we convinced them. And then on the night of 5, 6 June, uh, they were doing things out in the channel and over the channel to make it look like uh, that the, there were forces crossing the Straits of Dover. Uh, they had uh, aircraft out there dropping uh, what they called window. It's chaff, you know, strips of, of aluminum foil that blinded the radars so the Germans couldn't see the invasion fleet on radar um, or the aircraft carrying the airborne division. And then they had other uh, aircraft out there uh, and also a small craft with radar reflectors to make it look like there were a lot of ships uh, further east. And so these were uh, deceptions at the very last minute to add to the confusion for the Germans. So it was it was comprehensive. They had strategic deception, operational deception, tactical deception. It was uh, really rather impressive what the Allies were able to accomplish. Uh, there's some there's some excellent works on this. There's a Michael Howard uh, wrote the volume in the official British history of intelligence of the Second World War, um, and it's also been published just under the title Fortitude, Operation Fortitude, and it describes this in detail. But uh, anybody who's really interested in the deception, would, you know, if you look up Operation Fortitude, you can find a number of works on that. And I'm sure you find a lot online about this as well. But uh, but it wasn't the only problem. There was Royal Flush and Grafton and Ironside. And they, they, like I said, there were about a dozen deception plans. So when the Germans did find, uh, get real intelligence uh, on the real invasion, they had to put it in with the in the in the pot, really, with all the other plans they had. Had access to. And if so, they were confused, we can certainly understand it, can't yes, we? Yes, you certainly can. And then we, we did everything we could to, 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 to enhance that <laughs> confusion. Um, so it's funny because they did get accurate intelligence from time to time. Um, but again, they didn't know, you know, you had to kind of pick a plan because, you know, which, which one of these is real? And, uh, and there were some that on the morning, you know, the thing that was kind of interesting, if you've seen Longest Day, you know, they have the dummy paratroopers, you know, Rupert. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the dolls. Now, these are, 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 are dummy paratroopers. Dummy, yeah, that's what, that's yeah, what I'm calling they, dolls. Yeah. Called Rupert. 
and when they landed, it set off some firecrackers. The, the arms, the you know, the, the, the impact of hitting the ground, uh, the arms would come down, and it would set off little pyrotechnics and sounded like small arms and so forth. Um, and that was, again, to, to add confusion as to where the invasion was, was coming, where the airborne troops were landing. But one of the German generals I thought was particularly insightful was uh, uh, General Marx, General Marx. Um, and the moment he found out that we were dropping dummy paratroopers, he said, this is the real invasion. Because he realized very quickly, he was very, you know, he, he's a general who had studied deception, understood deception. He realized that you'd only use this trick, it will only work once. Uh, once you've done it once, you know, it, it won't be as effective. So he deduced very quickly that when he found out we were dropping dummy paratroopers, that this had to be the real invasion, that that we would not only be doing this, if this was the real thing. Uh, well, uh, I know, uh, I've asked you in the past, and I think, know that you, in general, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, think that the longest day is, is not a bad it's way a, to sort of get a, an outline of what's going on. And the thing that yeah. I would think most people would want to know, if they did not know, is that the, the soldier, I think he's played by Red Buttons in the movie, who gets hung up on the steeple of the church. Mm-hmm. And had a ringside seat for the battle down below, but that really happened. Yes, it did. And uh, that that must have been horrific. But my favorite scene in the movie is the guy, the German, who's in the bunker with his dog watching the water out there, and he takes a look, and there's nothing there, and he looks again about five minutes later, and there are more ships than he could imagine out there. That was Major Pluscott, and that really is what he... he couldn't. Uh, people thought he was exaggerating when he reported it in, um, but uh, yeah, he he uh, uh, was just uh, overwhelmed by the sight uh, as the fog lifted, and you could see that. For there were well, there were there were over uh, seven thousand ships, the largest uh, flotilla uh, ever put together. I suspect ever will be. Uh, there were there were twelve hundred warships out there, uh, thousands of landing craft. I mean, it was just an and amazing, the scale of this thing uh, was just, uh, they, they put 130,000 troops ashore in the, in the first day. And that's just, you know, um, unprecedented. Uh, how in the world, I mean, they, you know, and, and most of them um, ended up where they were supposed to. Now, now, all the way at the western end, at Utah Beach, the 4th Division landed um, uh, about a, a, a half a mile uh, off course, uh, the currents um, and so forth, uh, and fog, uh, you know, combined, and so they landed not exactly where they were supposed to land, but it turns out, uh, just by by sheer luck, it was a uh, almost totally undefended section of beach, and so they actually, in a way, were lucky to land where they did, and that's where the um, the assistant uh, divisional commander was a guy named Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know the former president's uh, uh, oldest son. And uh, General uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, he was luckily uh, came ashore with the uh, first wave, and somebody had to make a decision. Do you, do you now march down the beach to where you were supposed to be, or do you, do you just go you know, inland? And he had the authority to make the decision. Luckily, he was there, and he said, we go inland. You go inland, you get off the beach, you, get, you push into the interior. So it was really fortunate that, that he was there. Uh, he ended up, I believe, having a heart attack that day. Well, it was about a, a, a few weeks later that he had oh, a heart attack. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, 
Uh, I know, but he, but uh, he, the interesting thing was he could have uh, sat back on a yeah. ship somewhere and watched yeah. this happen, but he, he tromped up the the the, the beach with the, with his troops, if I yeah. remember correctly. And they show that in the longest day, and they're they're correct about that because it was also there was a lot of pressure not to have him go ashore. Uh, he had to he had to pull strings to 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 go ashore because uh, people thought it'd be a, a bad uh, for morale. If we lost the you know Theodore Roosevelt's son, um, but he, he insisted. He said, "This is my job. Uh, I'm, that's where I'm supposed to be." Um, and I think they show that rather 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 effectively in the in the movie. But you know Cornelius Ryan, who who wrote the the Longest Day, he researched every one of those people, like the, the fellow played red buttons hanging from the church tower at St. Mary Glees and all the rest. Uh, he interviewed. He's a journalist, and, and Cornelius Ryan went around and interviewed all these people. And so those those individuals that you see, all those little vignettes in in the Longest Day. Uh, he knew they happened because he interviewed the people who were there. It's really an oral history project, um, and he did a darn good job. Um, I, you know, of course, he he wrote other works so that were put together in pretty much the same way. Um, a bridge too far, for example, you know, about the market garden in 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 in, uh, in, in the Netherlands later in 1944. But uh, the uh, longest day, I think, is is, is quite. Uh, in terms of historical accuracy, I think quite a good movie. And of course, Saving Private Ryan, I think, is uh, that beat, as you mentioned, the beach scene there. And from the airborne, Band of Brothers, uh, I think, shows the, the situation that the airborne forces found themselves in. Uh, there's some wonderful maps that show uh, uh, the landing zones where the 82nd Airborne, the 101st Airborne, and the British 6th Airborne divisions. Were supposed to land. You have these maps of these little, you know, shaded areas where they were supposed to land, and then the next map will show you where the paratroopers actually came down. And there's not much. <laughs> they're, and, and, they're very dissimilar. Um, but the truth of the matter is, even though they ended up scattered all over the place, that added to the general confusion for the Germans. Uh, they, exactly, and uh, the again, you've got confusion because. They can't figure out where where they are. That's and, right. Uh, and I know, I think some of the paratroopers landing was the first time that this kind of thing had ever been done, as well as the glider pilots and those kind of things. They had 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 a lot of practice in that. And well, in we had, uh, battle. Uh, we we had uh, uh, kind of had a, um, uh, uh, we landed airborne troops at Torch, you know, in North Africa, and then a larger scale airborne operation in in uh, in Sicily. And with the same idea that the airborne would land inland and then link up with the seaborne invasion, um, and there've been problems with both of those. Um, but we learned from those mistakes, and so the airborne operations in Normandy were, were more successful. But uh, and again, they showed initiative. Uh, uh, airborne troops were, uh, you know, the, I don't want to overdo this, but they, they truly were uh, the elite. Um, and the officers and NCOs and men, all of them. So when they got on the ground, they were very aggressive. And so they, they were you know, ambushing uh, you know, German forces, trying to get to the front. They were cutting uh, telegraph lines. And the French resistance were, were creating as many problems as possible as well. So all in all, there was a, you know, the Germans had a lot to deal with on the 6th of June. And this is the point, and then we need to take a break, where I always have to mention 
because he's from my wife's hometown, but it was General, what was it, H.D. Lee? What was, yes. what was his, yes. his initials? Yeah. He was a promoter of uh, uh, parachute warfare and had yes. supposedly planned a lot of it, but he was not there because he had a heart attack yes. before the, the yes. invasion actually took place. Yeah. And uh, uh, the 82nd Airborne, of course, had come from Fort Bragg. Right. Uh, and anyway, Dr. Joe Cadell is our guest tonight, and he's doing a wonderful job of making me want to get my my history books out and uh, and finish watching the longest day and commemorate uh, the 77th anniversary of D-Day, uh, a very important day in 1944. Toward well, it, it uh, focused. Uh, what would end up being the end of the war in Europe? It t- would take a little bit longer, but uh, the the Allied troops were, were on the soil then, and uh, they were on the beach, so to speak. We'll be back with Jill Cadell to finish up our program tonight in just a couple of minutes. For Wednesday night, I believe it's June. Let's see, one two. That's June the second. And June the 6th will be the 77th anniversary of the landings at D-Day, and we always like to commemorate the important dates. And we've invited Dr. Joe Cadell to come and talk with us tonight. Joe, we've got three or four minutes left. Is there anything left that you want to touch on? If not, we can do a little bibliography here in terms of maybe John Keegan's book and Max yeah. Hastings or yeah. some other people. Yeah, I, um, I, I still think uh, Keegan's Six Armies in Normandy is one of the most readable. Uh, out there, and it's well done, and it's a comprehensive because it doesn't just focus on on the Americans, the Germans, the British. I mean, it, it deals with all the different forces that were involved. Um, Russell Wigley's uh, work, Eisenhower's Lieutenant, deals with really the American command structure and the role of the different generals, that, and, and again goes beyond just Eisenhower and 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 uh, and Patton. I mean, that's when people focus on him. You know, good deals with Bradley and Beetle Smith and all the rest of the folks. Um, but those those works, I think, are, are first rate. Carlos Dest um, has a, uh, the work that uh, uh, came out a few years ago, um, uh, Decision in, in, in Normandy, which is quite good. Um, but um, I think, again, uh, we were talking about the movie The Longest Day. The, the book that came out in 59, three years before the movie, um, I think is, is first rate. Um, I think it's very readable, it, and, and again, I mean, it's, it, it's entertaining in the same way the movie is because it, it talks about the individuals. It makes it a very um, makes it a very human story. So you you get to find out what what happened to individuals and what they were thinking and what they were worried about. And um, um, you know, again, this is I, I think what what makes it such a strong work. I'm going to take this as an opportunity to ask you something I have thought about asking you several times. If you had to read one biography of General Eisenhower, uh, you know, a full-fledged biography, which one would you choose? Oh, gosh, that's that's kind of hard to say. Um, I don't know. Um, probably um, uh, Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Eisenhower, soldier, general of the Army. Uh, President. I mean, I really would. But i tell you what, you, you reminded me of something. Um, and uh, our friend, uh, the late Joe Hobbs, Professor Hobbs from NC State, um, he, he edited a work uh, called Dear General, and it's the letters between General Marshall and General Eisenhower. You know, uh, Joe Hobbs, Professor Hobbs, and Stephen Ambrose were the editors of the Eisenhower papers, 
and they worked together for years up at you know, Johns Hopkins and then you know, dealing with Eisenhower papers. And Joe um, uh, edited this work, and he provides an introduction for each section, uh, which is superbly done, provides you a background. But every strategic decision that mattered, of course, is in those letters. And it's just fascinating. It's, 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 these are the letters between Chief of Staff of the Army, George Ar- you know, a, a Marshall, and the Supreme Commander, Allied Expeditionary Forces Europe, Eisenhower. And they, those letters are just amazing because you, you get to see what Marshall is, is saying and what Eisenhower is saying. And then Hobbes provides you perspective to explain what they're talking about. It's, a, it's not that long. And it was uh, uh, Johns uh, Hopkins, uh, the Johns Hopkins Press, um, uh, University Press published it, and they did a second uh, edition uh, oh, about oh, no, 20 well, years you, ago. Joe, what we have to do now is to stop right here. I always hate to stop because I really, really enjoy it. Let's just dedicate our whole program tonight to Joe Hobbs. How yes. about that? Yeah, I miss him a great deal. He was a okay. superb scholar. Joe Cadell has been our guest tonight. We've been talking about uh, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Not Pearl Harbor. I'll be all right in a moment. In D-Day, <laughs> which took place on June 6, 1944. Joe, I may give you a call a little bit later here, but thanks for being on with us tonight. Yes, sir. Okay? Yes, sir. Okay. Have a good evening. 